Apple presents events at the Apple Store. All right, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Danny Strong. Hello, everyone. Thank you all so much for coming out. This is very exciting. I just saw the movie today, and it's a really, really wonderful movie. I'm a, such a huge fan of Matt's work. We all know him from the legendary Mad Men and is a writer on The Sopranos. And, um, but this is, is this your directorial debut feature? Yeah. Writing directorial debut is a feature, and it's, it's a wonderful film, and it's so, it's so different from Mad Men in such an exciting way. It feels like it was made by a completely different guy. So without ado, let us start with a trailer for the movie. And out 89 degrees, Little Hilo, Hawaii is both the hottest and wettest spot in the nation. I guess that makes it the number one destination for teenage boys, eh, Victoria? I guess so, Steve. I just want to see my friend! Ah! Wait a second, I know that guy. You what? Look at her, a slutty, wicked stepmother. You can practically see through that dress. I don't think so. To my son, Ben, I leave my house, my business, and the remainder of the estate. What? You gotta be kidding me. I need some air. Was he even confident when he wrote this? Your father was quite lucid. I'm sorry, my suit was really itchy. I... So I'm not mentioned in there at all? It is just getting more and more intense. You were the squeaky wheel, so you got all the oil. Yes, the best way to get the soda out of the bottle is to shake it and shake it and shake it. It's a classic obstacle to a pioneer. It's like Galileo or Che or Jesus. Mr. Baker, have you been having difficulty distinguishing between real and unreal? My whole life. Are you afraid right now? I feel alone in the universe. Except for Steve. I don't think the issues of his life are your problem. See, nobody believes in friendship. People talk about it. That's the thing about friendship. It's a lot rarer than love because there's nothing in it for anybody. Every time I think you're crazy, along comes the justice system. And let us welcome the writer-director, Matthew Weiner. Hi, everybody. Hello. So, how are you, Danny? I'm Thank good. you for doing this. My pleasure, my pleasure. So you um, have spent the last 10 years doing the most, one of the most acclaimed, iconic television shows of all time. And coming off of that, you then make your directorial debut with, feature directorial debut, because you directed multiple episodes of Mad Men, with this movie. 
why this story coming off of Mad Men? Um, I don't, you know, it doesn't really lay out like that. Um, I'm sure it how appeared, does it? It lays out, well, basically I wrote the pilot of Mad Men <clears throat> and about uh, two and a half, three quick years later, I got a job on The Sopranos. And after my first season on The Sopranos, I wrote this movie. And so it was another four years before I wrote the second episode of Mad Men. <laughs> and uh, it's now been 14 years since I wrote the pilot of Mad Men. And, you know, nine years for this. So obviously it takes a while to get stuff made. <laughs> Some of it was because I was busy. But, I mean, this was a story that came to me. And uh, I don't really think in terms of genre. I don't really think in terms of uh, formula. Uh, my intention was kind of to do a, a, a movie uh, in the tradition of the early 70s movies that I love that are often socially conscious and have a lot to do with, with the truth and sort of present life as it is and are not formulaic. I don't know if you know the movie Five Easy Pieces is a big favorite of mine. And I um, kind of turned, you know, the issues of what was going on for me, which is not just our experience of being alienated, and I'd reached a point in my life where I was happily married, I have kids. My wife is certainly my best friend, but my male friends had really disappeared. And I was saying, like, you, you see friendship, so it's such a wish fulfillment in most entertainment. You know, the bromance and the, the you know, um, as Steve says it in the movie, nobody eats alone, you know? And I was like, so what does hold friendships together? What is holding things together? And then I added into it, basically, two characters um, who I think in some post-cinematic way think that they're living in a stoner comedy, um, except for that their life is actually not progressing at all. And you don't know if the friendship is holding their life where it is or if it's the best thing in it. But as bleak as that concept of growing up is, what I really wanted to say was like we are, to have a friendship like that is what, that, that's the first line I had in the movie is what's in the trailer. That's the first thing I had written down was that friendship is a lot rarer than love because there's nothing in it for anyone. And I just kind of wanted to say like, well, what, if you strip everything away, don't, don't act like that's nothing, that's everything. What's so interesting, you were talking about the films of the 70s because it does have such a Hal Ashby vibe. That this he's, movie does. He's one of my favorites. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why I love it so much. Is oh, that it I'm feels glad. That's like, kind of like it just feels like a, a Hal Ashby film, and in some ways a, a James L. Brooks film, too. I'll take either of these. And these are great. It's not bad. <laughs> um, what's, I admire both of those. What was the, what was the, you know, what was the spark that started this particular story? Was there something very specific that made you, that made this idea pop for you? Uh, and then how did that flourish? It was a, it, you know, it's like a lot of ideas. It was a bunch of things sort of going together. I mean, one of them was uh, my wife's family, you know, has a, has a family business. And it was, there was an issue about, you know, her mother's getting up in years, her father's been gone for a long time. And I saw the family sort of like what was going to happen to that business. And the successful, more transparently successful children were not really entitled to any of it. But you are. And the idea of like, well, what part of it's the family? What part are you entitled to? Because you're the family. And it's, it, can your inheritance be an expression of love? It shouldn't be. But it, it's really all it is. Mm -hmm. And then I, I actually had a, a, a total confluence of things that happened. One of them was realizing that uh, I would watch the weather every morning. And I had a, my son was at that, my oldest son was at that point six years old and he would go out in the balcony every morning and, and he would come in and he was 100% accurate. And I was like, well, what happened 
to me that I have absolutely no relationship with nature. Did I ever have that skill? And now I'm like in a bottle and you come and live in New York and you see Central Park and the first sunny day of spring and how people get naked. And you're like, what is our relationship to that? Why are we so far from it? And uh, it goes along with food too. I just kept thinking of the distance that we have from whatever our supposed natural state is. And along with that, the fact that I fell in love with this character who's unable to feel, which is Owen's character, who is basically drinking and using drugs and using women to avoid any of the, the deep sensations, which I find is a big part of a lot of people that I know. And um, suddenly this dynamic came across along with this friendship issue where I was like, well, there is one redeeming thing is that he has this guy that he knows and maybe, maybe they're sustaining each other's lack of growth through this friendship, but it's also the only redeeming quality for both of them. And I love this idea of telling the story in a Hal Ashby style that was um, uh, not formulaic. Could I create a plot where you had no idea what was going to happen next and it wouldn't, you wouldn't be adrift, you just wouldn't know. And um, there's a love triangle in it, there's all these sort of elements, but there's a lot of surprises in it, I think, which is, you know, it's different than Mad Men, but I think in its idea that it's about four incredibly flawed people and it may be the audience's experience as well as the character's experience of realizing that they're flawed over the life of the movie um, and how they're flawed and how that's expressed and that everybody's just doing the best that they can and you should really, in the most Pollyanna way, it's so simple, it's right in front of us, but to appreciate tiny things like, like food and love and friendship and just don't run away from that because everything in, in, in our world right now is encouraging us to sort of some idealized version of it that is like all idealized things unattainable and it makes what you have seem very disappointing and a lot of people just want to escape it's all about our urge to escape well along those lines as far as the <coughs> urge to escape it seems um i mean in this movie these guys they smoke a lot of weed yes they do they smoke a lot of weed for for two different purposes for two different purposes and in mad men there was quite a bit of drinking and smoking cigarettes. I mean, that was sort of. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, so it seems that it seems that um, functional addiction is this sort of motif. I and yes. And what about what about functional mo- uh, functional addiction is so interesting to you because you seem to explore it to such great depths in, in both of these pieces. I I mean, it's called "You Are Here" because it's about the idea of just being in the moment. And it's spoken of in Zen terms a lot of times, but you, you, the idea that you could actually be in the midst of an experience. And I think that for many of us, and I'm not just myself, this is unattainable because it requires effort. And anyone who's ever gone somewhere where your phone doesn't work or lost your phone and felt the deep, deep anxiety of missing that, and I'm one of those people. And the phone's amazing. It's an amazing device. And it, it it's, it's actually brings us closer to each other. You can communicate more than ever. But the idea that you get into these cycles, and I think that uh, when I was researching cigarettes for, for the Mad Men pilot, and the, the, the pilot is about um, the moment where they say that you cannot make any more medical claims. And Philip Morris had this huge crisis because everything they did was based on being doctors, uh, doctor's advice and which was the most healthy and which is, you know, whatever. And 
they went with this campaign called Marlboro Country, which I think they still use, which was just some sort of vague state of being that you get from, from nicotine. Mm-hmm. It was a drug illusion. And the idea that you don't have to be in reality, you can come to Marlboro Country, it's a, it's a drug. And even though Ben Zach's character says that you know people invented, you know people made beer before they had an alphabet, changing your state is part of the human condition, much like sleeping. It's just in every culture there's some kind of you know there's you find it, as soon as there's a green plant they're making alcohol. There is a tendency I think for people who uh, for a certain kind of person, and I I guess owing to the the interest people have in my work, certainly the Mad Men is populated with them who avoid their feelings by constantly changing their state, by keeping those, those addictions going. I mean, it becomes both a real thing and a symbolic thing, you know? It, hopefully the audience can recognize it. Uh, as anyone who's binge-watched something and missed a day of work. <laughs> um, and also it becomes something for the characters to say, like, I mean, I guess I'm not like saying to the audience, go out and play, it's a nice day. But I am saying that um, we get alienated and dissociated from each other. And there are, if you can bring yourself to sort of drop these habits, even for a moment, you can experience something amazing. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about your creative process. Sure. And the, because as you were discussing the structure of this film, it is completely unpredictable in a way that uh, I haven't seen in quite a long time. Um, did you, how, how, how do you come up with this? Do you, do you structure it all the way through? Do you allow yourself to find these crazy turns, which don't feel like crazy turns, and yet simultaneously the plot goes in completely different directions and in a way where it doesn't even jolt you. It feels organic to the story, but yet it's completely surprising. What was well, your process you know, to you get know there? Well, you know what? It's, it's kind of like most of the things I write um, I have an idea of who the people are and I have I, an idea of the ending and then I sort of try and hang it even though I said it's, you know, it has no formula I try and hang it on a kind of a traditional movie structure if there is such a thing which um, I guess the way that you know, it evolved supposedly from, from silent movies but like Billy Wilder movies have, the, have a little bit of a traditional Hal Ashby movies have them and then they kind of breaks down but it's basically just what you think, a beginning, a middle, and an end. What's the climax? Where's their twist in the second act? You know, I literally start thinking about things that way. And then you start working on the outline, and scenes come to mind. You're like, well, where does that go? Where does that go? How does that work? That's a funny idea. How does that work? And what happens is you just keep ironing it out and ironing it out. And the funny thing is, is at a certain point, I realized that this story of friendship, that this is a romance between these two characters, and it was kind of like structured like a romance in the sense that most romances are boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. And the climax is the guy losing the girl, or the girl losing the guy. And I was missing, once I I had the conflict in there in the second act, and I had romance in the second act, and there were all these things, but the most, like everything, the big scene at the end where they where they hash it out, I had completely skipped it because I didn't want to emotionally deal with it. So at a certain point, you're working with, a, like everybody, you should have some, it's not wrong to have a mathematical process at some point as long as you're flexible. And then the emotions take over. And, you know, I told you, you know, there's, there's certain twists in the story that were problems to solve. And you, 
like all of your problems to solve, you know, from writing, you, you, you walk away from it and hope that something comes to you or someone suggests something, any of that. A lot of eavesdropping. I'm always eavesdropping. Yeah. Or, you know, in the end, sometimes I think when I talked about like referencing other movies, that we reference other movies in life. I've always said like, you know, when people talk about Betty Draper on Mad Men, someone says, oh, it's like a Douglas Sirk movie. And I'm like, no, it's really not. Betty Draper watches Douglas Sirk movies. You know, these guys are watching these movies and they're having these feelings. And at a certain point, most of the surprise in the story just comes from not having it be like what a movie would do. And not deliberately. It's not binary. It's like, well, a movie does this. Uh, the movie has a happy ending. I'll turn, I'm going to have a sad ending. It's not like that at all. I want the story to find its way. But a lot of times you just say, you know what? You, you, you show up to, to, to go see your friend and you, you want to apologize and they're not there. That's much more real than, you know, they, all of a sudden you get tension from that than from the movie version of, like, the perfect parking spot and, you know. Yeah. So. Um, should we watch one of our two clips? Absolutely. Let's run clip number one. You think the graphics in bad taste? No one knows. I don't know. That captures the mood. She's really solid. And he's really high. <laughs> you know, Stu, you just don't go spreading rumors about people like that. The man's a working professional. Lots of people have squinty red eyes, insatiable thirst, and trouble walking. He could be diabetic or something. You're right, I'm sorry. The bearded bespectacled doctor murdered at least 26 patients, making him one of the world's most prolific killers. So, Steve, how's it looking out there today? It's about time we saw some of this warmer weather. Well, Victoria, let's get things started with a little shot of the harbor and some seagulls enjoying the sunshine. How you doing there, fellas? Today's high will get up to about 65 degrees with unlimited visibility, which means if we could get this knucklehead out of the way, you could see clear down to Ocean City. Coldest spot in the nation? Why, that honor goes to Bismarck. Smooth as silk. That seemed to you like someone on drugs? And at 100% humidity and 89 degrees, Little Hilo, Hawaii is both the hottest and wettest spot in the nation. I guess that makes it the number one destination for teenage boys. Eh, Victoria? I guess so, Steve. So Owen Wilson is terrific in this movie. It's, it's a fantastic performance. How did you, how did you come to Owen? Um, I wrote it for Owen, and uh, eight short years later, he got the script. Uh-huh. Um, it really was. That's really the truth. I mean, I love the idea. I think Owen, I think all of these actors, uh, Laura Ramsey, you don't know that well, but she's amazing in, this, she's in the movie. She's wonderful uh, in this movie. And, but uh, Amy and, and Zach and Owen are all doing things in this movie that they don't usually do. And what I wanted to do, particularly with Owen, was play with his screen persona, which is, you know, guileless, you know, selfish stoner that he is and sort of say like, well, what's, what would happen? What's underneath that? Why is that person like that? And, um, you know, I couldn't get him the script for years. And then he became, he was a fan of the show and we had dinner and I said, well, you, you know, I, have a, I wrote a movie for you. And it, he said yes. And then it was just a matter of like all of us finding when we were free. So were you planning for, for years? Did you tell yourself, I'm going to make this movie one day? 
This is going to get uh, done. Yes. Is it something that you've been yes. wanting to get done over the years? Uh, uh, yes. Um, it's. I always wanted this to be my first movie. Um, it's very meaningful to me, and I and I kept thinking like it's so related to what's going on right now. I think people will recognize it. They will recognize the places. They will recognize what's ugly and what's beautiful. And um, I just felt like that the more the time passed, it would end up just like not being worth telling that story anymore. It would just be too late. But um, I found, and I haven't heard any different stories from anybody, that every movie takes this long to get made. <laughs> Occasionally, there's a flame under something, and um, you know, it, it, it just happens. But for the most part, you know, luckily, I, you know, I've had a million people fall in and out of the cast. I always wanted Owen, and I couldn't even, you know, it's a certain point you're like, something great happens, like Mad Men, and you're like, okay, what do you want to do? I want to do this movie. When can you do it? I don't know. So you have many reasons for what happens. But for me, this is just such a personal story, and um, I think it's strange in a way because it does have a lot of, of comedy in it, and these guys are really funny, but it does have like a sort of a spiritual element to it, which was unconscious for me. I mean, it kind of was pointed out to me by the actors while we were making it. Um, I don't think there's a lot of movies where you will hear the word God and not used as a joke. The strange thing is, is that at the same time, it's very, like the 70s movie, it's has nudity in it and a lot of drug use, and it's kind of profane. Oh, and yeah. That was sort of the mixture. I remember all that. that. Well, it's a weird thing. It's not, we're so prude now. Sure. We only go one way or the other. You either got to go for full on, like the, the prurient version of it, or it, it doesn't exist in the same realm. Well, it's so uh, interesting that you just brought up the, the God element of the film, because that's literally what I was just about to ask you. Oh, really? Is that there is, there's a, a whole storyline here. Um, that the film takes place in Amish country, a big portion of right. the film. And so there are Amish characters. And in, sometimes it's comedic, but sometimes it's very spiritual and profound. And the, one of my favorite scenes is a scene uh, about God. So you're saying that it was unconscious. Well, the weird thing is, is that, you know, the story is that Owen's character has to stop taking drugs and Zach's character has to start taking drugs. Um, he's, he, you, you, you know, they're in this together, um, but really, as this movie goes on, you realize that Owen has a drug problem and that Zach's character is mentally ill. And he is fixated on the Amish because he is very interested in nature and he has a sort of f philosophical, you know, uh, Luddite philosophy of, like, the earth and what's natural. And he finds the Amish to be an ideal in a way. And then when you bump up against the Amish, you sort of see that they are religious fanatics. <laughs> and at the same time, there is something pure about what they're doing. So you may not want to live like them, but there is something pure about what they're doing. And so uh, I used it as a way, you know, I found out that they see real, do you know, real doctors. They see, you can't even say Western. They see English doctors is what they call um, non-Amish. Uh, um, and especially for uh, mental illness. And so for me, it was a way to solve the problem of like, how do you get this person to, I'm trying not to give away the movie here, that's why I'm being so vague. But anyway, the, for me, if you say that they're really Amish people and you take them really seriously and, you, and that you realize that they grew up around here and he's kind of fixated on them, and then you start talking about, well, why do they live that way? And why can't we live that way? And you hear the virtues in it, and at the same time, you're like, I don't want to live that way. 
So the same way I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm very interested in where food comes from. You know, I had my, again, one of my kids, we were at some party and there was a chicken leg there and I like took a bite of it and it was like, the skin was like raw or whatever and I threw it in the garbage pail and he looked up at me and he goes, you know, dad, that was a chicken's whole leg. And I was like, God, I'm an asshole. You know, but I, you are, we're so dishonest about it. Was that the inspiration for the chicken scene? It was a little bit of it. There's a little There's bit a of it. There's a chicken scene. It's a little <laughs> bloody. Um, the idea being that we're completely removed from the food supply, and this guy is, you know, living in a condo, completely, you know, with the, this treating his job irresponsibly. He he is virtuous about his friend, but everything else is a joke to him. And he decides to clean up his act for this woman, and uh, the first thing she does is she makes him go out and kill a chicken for dinner. And I kept thinking, like, this is probably the first honest thing this guy's ever done in his life. And I don't know if I could do it. You know, it's, it's uh, to be responsible for what you're eating, it probably would make us a lot nicer to each other if we actually had to, to emotionally invest in that. Although every culture finds somebody to pay to do that, because it's really hard. I've never done it. Me neither. We did not kill any chickens in the movie either, but they did kill about 50 thousand of them while we were having this conversation yeah <laughs> so um you've just come off uh this tremendous run you just finished the shooting the final episodes of Mad Men, right yes we and finished then, it in july and it will air next year the last seven i'm next, doing post on them uh-huh and then you've just finished your directorial debut yes so what next what are you thinking um i don't know uh, i've written a play but i think uh which i may pursue that but i think what I'm really going to do is I'm, and I think I bought a little time because the show's not going to be actually airing for a little bit, but I need to let the field go fallow for a little bit. I, you know, 92 hours of the show really expressing a lot of what I had to express, my, my own and other people's ideas, of course. And getting to make this movie finally, I kind of feel like it's time for me to shut up for a second and go back to eavesdropping for a living, which is what we do. <laughs> yeah, and go yeah. back to real life. And you know this, I mean, there's so much of, uh, of the writer's experience has to do with actually living. And I'm lucky enough that I can go back to just, as I said, eavesdropping. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, on that, let's go to the next clip. Okay, great. Whatever remains of me is hopefully not limited to my estate, my belongings. Know that what I leave you is in no way a measure of my feelings. Angela, you are the executor with all that entails. From the first time I saw you in my store, leading that field trip of very special young students, I knew the power of your soul to heal others was surely from another place. I would have left the planet long ago if not for making love to you. The kindness of your curves, your moistness in the morning, my fingers gently... Oh, come on! Yeah. Wow. Again, what are you doing here? He's with me. I'll leave. You got to bring him. He's my husband. Please, can we stop all this bickering? A man died here, a very rich man. Um, should we take questions from the audience? Is that... Yeah. Questions from the audience? Yes, go ahead, you. Hi. Um, first of all, I'm a big fan of Mad Men, so thank you for that. I recognize Danny from a few episodes as well. Yes. And more recently, an episode of Girls, which was really funny. Thank you. Thank you. Um, 
you, I know you said that you wrote the, while writing the script, you wrote the role for Owen. Um, I was wondering, did you have Amy or Zach in mind? Because you said it's not much of a comedy. I mean, it's obviously funny. But um, you ended up with three comedians. Oh, it's, it's definitely a comedy. I mean, you know, it's, they, they, they just do something. They change throughout the story. There's a lot of drama in it also. And no, I did not know um, uh, Amy Poehler existed, actually, I think, when I wrote it. Maybe she had just gotten on SNL. And Zach, that, you know, just to remember the calendar, this is like before The Hangover. It wasn't like no one knew who he was, but I didn't know who he was. And so for me, it was one of these things. I met Zach right before The Hangover, actually, because John Hamm was friends with him. And uh, I, he's, he's just like exudes, you know, pathos. And obviously he's, he's really, besides being funny, he's just, uh, he's a very, um, he's, he's a deep actor. And, uh, and, he, and Amy came along last and the idea of them playing brother and sister was exciting to both of them. And they kind of are a good match set. And, uh, you know, it's one of these things where you, to explain the tone in the movie, it's maybe something you haven't seen before. And I don't know if that's good or bad, but I think Mad Men is similar in that sense. It doesn't really have a genre. It doesn't, you know, it's kind of like the way I work. I, I work with story and that's the most important thing to me. So what you will see is, you know, Amy could have played it much broader than she did and it probably would have been a little bit funnier, but we tried to keep it within the realm of reality. So the stuff is funny, but it's in the, you know, smaller, it's in a more realistic vein. Well, you know, Mad Men felt, felt like a, a really profound drama that at times was very funny. And this feels like a really funny movie that ends up becoming a profound drama by the time it's over. Sort of the... That's all positive. That's <laughs> sort, of, sort of my takeaway. It's away. very different yeah. than Mad Men, I have to say oh, that. Yeah, completely. And, and, um, and that's, you know, I go by what the story is. The things that are similar, like I said, is there are four flawed characters there, and the attention to detail, I think we kind of, I made it with the entire crew from the show. Uh, production designer, cinematographer, producer, editor, you know, casting, hair, makeup, props, all of it. And we kind of turned our attention on right now. And I think you'll see that level of detail, but a lot of it's about what's ugly and not about what's beautiful. Yes. Thanks a lot for doing this. Sure. I want to get your thoughts to somebody who created such a great TV show about how people are consuming your television show. Are you, do you have a preference, for example, um, you know, on Netflix and the Apple Store, people are literally consuming seasons as 10-hour movies? Or do you have a, a preference of having it viewed uh, episodic where, you know, you see it live or you know you know what all of it's going to make me sound old in some weird way the show came along exactly at the moment when the the internet companies went from saying no one will watch anything online that's longer than three minutes no one admitting that it was a technological issue to people streaming whole shows to my kids not even knowing that netflix or itunes are on the computer because there's a button and we have apple tv they don't even know. They just think it's another kind of, it's like another station. I am an incredibly controlling person, and I would, you know, the most important thing for me is that I, I actually make the show in a way that I hopefully you will have to pay full attention to it and not talk over it and not fill out your checkbook. And yes, it's weird to like see five or six years of your life consumed in like <laughs> seven days by some people. On the other hand, like all I wanted to do was make something that people watched. And um, the thing that I miss is the 
communal part of it. I love the idea that on that you have to wait a week between the episodes. I love the idea that that the shows stick with you. This movie sticks with you. There's just like a a resonance that happens, and it's not just water cooler conversation. It's the idea that it will you'll live with it a little bit. But I think it still happens to people when they watch the show. It does change the pressure on the narrative to watch them all at once. And I always promised AMC that I would have something in the story every week that would propel people to the next week until I did the, the 13th hour of each season. But some of it is just, you know, it's there for the experience. There are whole episodes that are about things as, as vague and amorphous as what is it, how do other people see you? That's a, that's a story for me, that's a plot. So sometimes when you're, when you're ripping through them that fast, you don't, you don't get to enjoy that part of it. But you know what? I've binge watched plenty of stuff. <laughs> I understand the joy and the impatience of like, and the, of like, you know what? Let's just finish the ice cream right now. <laughs> so that's all I can say is like, it's, uh, it's changing and you kind of got to get with it the same way, you know, this is on video on demand on the same day it's in the theaters, all this stuff, this is the way it's happening. And, Entertainment is important to people, so that's all you hope is that you can that you can get them to um, in, enjoy it with some meaning. You know, I have a d huge DVD collection, most of which I never opened. I just want to own them. Uh, great fan of uh, MM. Thank you. On the movie, um, did you personally do any uh, rewriting? Uh, I guess this applies to uh, Mad Men as well. Uh, any, a lot, uh, improvise yeah, oh, or stay. There's not a lot of improvisation because I, the script was around for so long. Of course, with these two actors, you can't just like rule it out. And there's a lot of lines to learn, which they, they're not always in movies that have lines like this. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, rewriting it constantly. I mean, uh, you know, Danny, you'll agree with this. That's the hardest part is when to stop rewriting. And in fact, uh, I even had... When we went to shoot the movie, you know, it was 33 days. It's a, it's, it's a real independent movie done with an independent budget. So started saying, like, well, what can we do to cut, cut it down to make it in the schedule? I, the, the, the writer's room at Mad Men, the script went through it, and they helped me cut everything that I needed to cut. And I did a rewrite as late as, um, you know, two days before production. But once we were on set, I tried not to mess around with it. There's too many other factors. And... Um, you know, who knows if I'll be like that the next time I do, do the next movie. I may, I may loosen up a little bit. I'm, I'm impressed with writers and directors like David Russell who can, you know, throw lines out from behind the camera or let people sort of find things. But I believe casting is half of it. And I always, a scene like that Will scene is something that you, it is, it is comedically pretty specific. And so all you do is you rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it till the timing's right, and then you start shooting it and hope everybody can hold on to that rhythm. Uh, you seem to have an interest in other eras. Uh, obviously, you mentioned this movie has reference to the 70s and all those great films. And, of course, Mad Men is the 60s, and even uh, the Amish are sort of from another era. Oh, boy. <laughs> God knows what era that is. So uh, what is this fascination with uh, trying to draw from other periods and... and what did you do in your own head to look into those eras? Um, it's just, I mean, you only know the period you know. Uh, you know, I wasn't even alive before, like, season five of Mad Men. 
forget about what your earliest recollection is. Um, I think we're all obsessed with other periods. I think, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a culture that's certainly obsessed with time travel. And I think it's part of the technological uh, explosion that's happened in the last 10 years. We won't know what it means because we're in the middle of it. And it's very friendly and very warm, and it, a lot of it's very good, but we don't even know what we're clinging to. We don't even know why, you know, my iPhone has a wooden case on it, and I'm not the only person who wants that. Who knows what that is? Um, that's all it is, you know. Um, this is a very contemporary movie. It's absolutely drawn from right now, but the style of filmmaking is from another era. And the style of storytelling is something that I felt is one of my favorite eras in film. Those are, and it may, I don't think it's just because it's my childhood, because I was definitely too young to see a lot of those movies when they came out, and I saw them anyway, because that was another part of child rearing in that era. <laughs> um, was, you know, everything was basically, had just stopped being rated G very recently. So we'd go to the drive-in and see things that were not appropriate. <laughs> I saw shampoo in a drive-in, I must have been like nine. Hey. Hi. Um, so I have a question that's uh, directed towards your opening. Uh, it's more about the choice of going towards RJD2 for your opening. Uh, oh, of Mad Men, the yeah, credits? Yeah, it's kind of a brilliant way to approach an opening to me, and the not visually, but sound-wise. And um, was that conscious, or was someone like, hey, check out this artist, he's, uh, he's awesome? No, no. You know what it was? It's... It's funny because it's so codified now. I thought of all the opening title sequences that I loved. The Sopranos being one of the most amazing ones. Uh, it's a minute and a half long. The other ones, MASH, Mary Tyler Moore, um, Get Smart. Um, you know, just like the Beverly Hillbillies, honestly. You know, you just sort of like think about if I'm going to do a title sequence and I only have 35 seconds. And so I had this image and then as we started realizing that we couldn't really shoot it, I, I always wanted the show, it's the reason why the show's not in black and white. I did not want the experience to be abstract. I am, at least at this point in my life, very interested in reality or, or approximating reality the way it feels to me. And yes, the people are more eloquent than we are in our lives, but there is, part of the pace is to make it feel like reality does to me. And one of those things was saying like, I heard that song on NPR, on Marketplace, as an interstitial song, and I already had the imagery in mind, and they were sort of working on the animation, and I had gone to, um, we turned into the network with, uh, with Beck's New Pollution, and just title cards. Um, I had the idea that there was something slightly retro, but electronic would give us both things. And this, it's the reason why the opening titles are so clearly not cell animation. I, I wanted it to look animated, but I wanted it to look like it was done now. And so things like that are always, it's not rotoscoped, it's like a very, it's computer graphics. So the song did the same thing for me. And as you know, that song we now know is like a mix of a sample of uh, an old, and I, I just heard it and I just thought it sounded like French movie music and a little bit, a little bit dramatic and I liked the drive and it felt like a guy falling off a building. It's just lucky. That's really what it is. And let me tell you something. Just to, again, to comment on technology, hearing a song on NPR and trying to find it was really, really hard. You, you, couldn't, there was, you couldn't just go to the website. And this is like 2007. 
So. What kind of advice would you have for young filmmakers who aspire to be like you? Um, I'm supposed to say something really glib and mean here, but I actually am going to take that question seriously because I will tell you the first thing I can tell you, and Danny will vouch for this as well. I went to things like this and used every grain of inspiration that I could to make people that I admired my mentors without ever meeting them. Some of them are dead. And I looked at their lives and saw how long things it took for things to happen for them, and it just was the way for me to survive in the face of rejection. And I can tell, I mean, you can say, I, I told you I wrote the pilot for Mad Men 14 years ago. There's been a lot of rejection. In fact, there's like 99% rejection. And it's very hard, and you start to sort of protect yourself, and you don't want to become bitter in the face of any kind of setback. Things don't work out the way you want them to. And I have a really supportive family and friends, um, and I just try to, to keep finishing things. It's really the key. And you're going to beat yourself up. But I always look at it this way. If you write one page every day, at the end of a year, you will have 365 pages. That may be more than you've ever written in your life right now. And you miss a day here. You fall off the wagon, whatever. You, but it's still, if you can finish things, you will get better. It's just that simple. And, and don't, don't be afraid to, to, if there are people like me that are honest about how hard their journey was, use it. Stay with it, you know? I, I was writing the pilot for Mad Men right when The Sopranos came on the air. And um, I actually, it's almost a coincidence. And then I saw it and I was like, well, Don doesn't kill people, but, so, but they're, they're kind of similar. If this, you know, that thing being successful was so invigorating for me. And that David was significantly older than me when it happened to him. It all was like, okay, here we go, you know? You can read outliers and things like that and talk about these 10,000 hours, but the fact remains, whatever the story is, the Beatles played together for eight years before they had a record. They started very young, but that's the Beatles. And usually successful people just hide that. And that's all I can tell you is like, get your imaginary mentors and finish stuff. Can you think of anything else? You can answer that. Yeah, I, I would just say along those lines, just keep writing. I mean, if that's what you want to do, if you want to write, you just have to keep writing, and whatever happens with the projects can be out of your control at a certain point. And listen to these stories of how many years it took for these projects to, to come to fruition, but the projects not getting made didn't prevent Matt from writing. And for, for me, it took me six years before I sold my first project, and I wrote all through those six years, and lots of rejection to this day, but I just, I just keep writing. And you get better. That's, that's the, one of the most important. You just get better by doing it. Yeah, if you're, if you're not getting better, you should, you, it's bad. <laughs> I'm gonna say, that, that's I'm, discouraging. I'm going to make that diagnosis right now. Be prepared for people to say no and figure out a way to deal with it. And he's right. Just keep writing. You just get kicked around. So at every level of, of your career, you get kicked around. So you just have to keep doing your work. Hi there. Um, you mentioned that at times the movie took some spiritual turns. Uh, could you elaborate more of how it happened in, since you didn't make it part of your script, it just happened? Well, I mean, it's in the script. I guess I didn't know that it was on my mind. 
And I guess that when I talk, I mean, a lot of my work is about loneliness um, and how we're connected to each other. And I think that as the movie asks the question over and over again, what, what holds us together and who deserves to be together and how do you get someone, how do you earn someone's love? How do you deserve someone's love? Or does it just happen? Are they just there? That's a kind of dark question. And you do, you know, the, the answer started to come up very, very, the answer was always, are you here? The answer was always like, can you have a moment? Can you be in the moment with another person? Can you appreciate that? I did not know that asking that question was a spiritual question, I guess. I just wanted to, to pay attention to what was good and see if I could take these people who were kind of in, inhibiting their ability, each other's ability to grow, and get them to a place where they change. They kind of switch places over the course of the movie and have them not walk away with nothing because being an adult is a compromise. And you do lose your ability to be irresponsible and you lose your ability to hate authority for the most part and you do become part of the machine and you, if, you are, if you are mentally ill, you will have to take the compromise of not feeling your disease, of not having those incredible highs because the lows are too much. That's all a compromise of growing up and you will lose something. So what do you get out of it? And that was what became the spiritual part of it. It was that, that answer to that and it's in the movie. It was a surprise to me, as it is sometimes, it sounds mystical in some way, but sometimes you're writing and you're just telling a story and you don't even know what's on your mind until, you, until it's done. And that's magic. And, and by the way, you don't do that by yourself. It's, it's the part of the amount of people there are, there, it's not just the credits, there are, forgetting about all the friends of mine that read it over the years, all the actors that read it over the years and gave me thoughts, all the producers that rejected it and gave me thoughts, all those things. There's five or six hundred people's mindset in this. And that's kind of, that's spiritual, believe me. <laughs> and I, I really appreciate it, Danny. My pleasure, of course. Great seeing you. Thank you, everybody. I hope Thanks, I everybody. To...